Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. The Gospel of Luke, second chapter, beginning of verse 1, proceeding through verse 20. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. This concludes the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this wonderful, glorious nativity picture. And Father, it is uh, one which we have read often, which we often read uh, at Christmas time. And yet, Lord, it is a truth that we desire to have impressed upon us anew each time we read it. And so, Father, open our eyes to the, to the truth that you have proclaimed here. Help us to, to see anew the beauty of Jesus Christ and the great joy that resides within him. And Father, we pray that that great joy would be residing within our heart as well. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And please be seated. Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, was the first Roman emperor. He reigned from 27 B.C. until his death in 14 A.D. And Caesar Augustus has been written into the history books as a man who brought stability 
and prosperity to the emerging Roman Empire. He did this by creating a strong centralized government and establishing a professional standing army. Uh, these reforms brought an end to years of civil unrest and political turmoil, which contributed to the long-term success of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus is also known for having accomplished many cultural advances in his, uh, during his reign. Poets like Virgil, Horace, and Ovid are some of the literary geniuses that benefited from Augustus's support of the arts and literature. And similarly, Augustus uh, commissioned many building projects, popularizing that uniquely recognizable style of architecture that we now associate with the Romans. All of these things were done by Caesar Augustus. All of these things uh, were attributed to him as great accomplishments that he, that, that, that he performed. And all of these things, of course, take money. Political reforms, cultural reforms, a standing army, building projects. And where do civil governments get the money to do these types of things? From taxing their people. Uh, that's what Caesar Augustus was doing in verse 1 of our sermon text. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, when Luke writes that all the people should be registered, he's referring to a census. Uh, Caesar Augustus ordered everybody in the Roman Empire to register their name, their family information, their occupation, and the property they owned. And the purpose of this registration uh, is so that they can then be told how much taxes they need to pay to the Roman Empire. So this wasn't just a, a census that recorded some basic information about the population. It was a census that assessed a person's wealth and then taxed them accordingly. And this wasn't exactly a popular census amongst the Jews. Uh, you may recall the conversation amongst the, the members of the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. Peter and some other apostles had been arrested for preaching about Jesus Christ, and the members of the Sanhedrin were trying to figure out what to do with these apostles. And uh, Gamaliel warned them not to be hasty in their decision. Uh, in Acts 5, verse 37, Gamaliel uh, reminded them that a man named Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, sparking an insurrection, but that insurrection was quickly squashed by the Romans. They killed Judas of Galilee, and that put an end to the resurrection. But the point I'm drawing your attention to with this is that that insurrection, that insurrection which was led by Judas of Galilee, was a result of the census that we're reading about here in our sermon text. And Judas of Galilee was protesting the burdensome taxation that was being imposed upon the Jews. It was Israel's version of the Boston Tea Party. So understand that when we read about Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem to be registered, this is like a, a summons to appear at the IRS office so they can assess some unexpected taxes that you're going to need to pay. And it's not like the IRS office was just around the corner for Joseph and Mary. They needed to, to travel uh, 90 miles, up to 90 miles from their home in Nazareth so that they could be in Bethlehem. Here you see a map of 
uh, of Israel and uh, the greater section of, of Palestine. And um, up here is Nazareth. This is where Joseph and Mary lived. And they needed to travel down here to Bethlehem. And of course, they ha Samaria stands between Nazareth and Bethlehem. And as you know, the, the Jews often uh, avoided Samaria. So you can see two routes on this screen. Uh, this is a more direct route that goes through Samaria. And maybe that's the route they took. If so, that would be about a 70 mile uh, travel. Uh, if they avoided uh, Samaria, went around it and came down here along the Jordan River, then it would be about a 90 mile trip into Bethlehem. So this is what Mary and Joseph are doing in our sermon text. They're making this trip. And, and let's take a moment to notice what God is doing here. 700 years earlier, Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth. Uh, they knew that the baby in Mary's womb was the Messiah because God had revealed that to them through the angel. But it's not as if Joseph and Mary were researching all of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament to see uh, what they needed to be doing at any given time in their life. Right? They, they, they were not trying to research the prophecies so that they can intentionally make those prophecies come true. Uh, no, they were just going about their daily lives. Uh, they were just doing the things that they knew they were supposed to be doing, trying to bring honor and glory to God while they lived their daily lives. The fact that Caesar Augustus ordered a census which required Mary and Joseph to register in Bethlehem right at the time Mary gave birth to Jesus is an indication that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's an indication that God had declared the end from the beginning, that his counsel will stand, and that all his pleasure will be done. Fulfilled Bible prophecy is powerful evidence that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, I haven't taken the time to count for myself, but it's been said that there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the life, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that have already been fulfilled. They were fulfilled in the Gospels with the, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which is to say there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the four Gospels alone. And that's powerful. That's powerful evidence of the the, the, uh, the inspiration of the scriptures. When Bible critics are confronted with the evidence of fulfilled prophecies, one of the tactics they use to try to dismiss this evidence is to allege that the people in the New Testament were just following the script. The critics claim that the people in the New Testament knew what the Old Testament prophecies predicted, and so they intentionally did whatever they needed to do to make those prophecies, make those predictions come true. So the critic says, this doesn't prove that God is the author of the Bible. It just proves that people are willing to go to great lengths to bolster their claims, the claims of their religion. Well, that's not what we see Joseph and Mary doing here in our sermon text. If the Bible critic's allegation is true, then Joseph and Mary 
would have rented an Airbnb in Bethlehem a month before Jesus was born just to make sure they were in Bethlehem when she went into labor. But of course, that's not how it happened. The reality is Joseph and Mary were just living their lives in obedience to the Lord, content to be in Nazareth. They were not trying to figure out what, uh, how they were going to fulfill this 700-year-old prophecy. They were just going about their lives in a manner that honored the Lord. So when they received the summons from Caesar Augustus to register in Bethlehem, they went to Bethlehem out of obedience to what God would have them do. And I have a very strong suspicion that they did not want to go to Bethlehem. Joseph probably said something like, I can't believe the timing of this census. Mary, you're nine months pregnant. You shouldn't be traveling right now. I have a carpentry job that I'm supposed to finish next week. And I don't know where we're going to come up with the money to, to pay these taxes that they're going to impose upon us. But this is what we need to do. It's not going to be easy. But God's grace will be sufficient for us. I'll pack the bags and I'll get the donkey ready and we'll leave in the morning. Sometimes we Christians work ourselves into a frenzy trying to figure out all the details of what God wants us to do in our lives. We know that God has plans for us. We know that he has called each of us to serve him with our lives. So some of us try to figure out all the details for how we're going to do that for the next 10 or 20 years. Now, don't get me wrong. We should strive to know what the Lord's calling is for us. And we need to uh, pursue that calling with intentionality. But we also need to take comfort in knowing that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, which means much of what you will do to fulfill the plans that God has for you is simply live your life in obedience to his word. And this is because you're not able to know all the events and situations that need to develop in your life for God's plans to work out. And even if you did know all those things, you'd never be able to bring them about because you don't have the power and wisdom to do so. But God does. God has the knowledge, the power, the wisdom, and everything else that's necessary to bring about his plans. Now, our sermon text is giving us a glimpse into the complex nature of God's governance of his creation. We can't possibly fathom the intricacies that are involved in making all things work according to the counsel of God's will. But we can see a little glimpse of this in our sermon text, just a little sliver of it. And this little glimpse is stupefying because it shows us how the Roman army, extensive building projects, the promotion of arts and literature, and various other political and cultural reforms in the Roman Empire are just a few of the things that God had brought together in the right place at the right time to bring about a census that brought Mary to Bethlehem at the precise time that she was to give birth to Jesus. That's the glory of the God we worship. He controls those things. He knows them. They're all under his control. You don't need to know all the details of how God is working out the plans he has in your lives, brothers and sisters. Your responsibility 
is to be obedient to the things that God has chosen to reveal to you. And when you're obedient to him in the everyday matters and affairs of your life, like Joseph and Mary were, you can have confidence that he will lead you where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there. The narrative in our sermon text expands beyond Joseph and Mary uh, in verse 8. Luke introduces us to the shepherds. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord uh, stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. We should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. We might have a tendency to do this because Jesus often used the metaphor of a shepherd to describe his ministry to his people. Uh, And that's an appropriate metaphor because uh, uh, Jesus was entitled to use that. In fact, it was totally right for him to use that metaphor. It goes back to Psalm 23, where David, who worked as a shepherd when he was a young boy, David acknowledges that he has everything he needs because the Lord is his shepherd. Whether in life or death, David lacks nothing because he has the Lord watching over him. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, I think you can recognize that all of this is shepherd language. The pastures, the rod, the staff, the, the, the streams of water. This is shepherd language. This is a beautiful metaphor of how the Lord faithfully and compassionately watches over his people and protects them. So when Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd, he's using this beautiful metaphor to describe the faithful and compassionate care he gives to his people. But understand, shepherds were not exactly the most esteemed people in ancient society. In general, they were dishonest and distrusted. In Sanhedrin 25b of the Babylonian Talmud, we read that shepherds were disqualified from bearing witness and giving testimony. Shepherds were disqualified from bearing witness and giving testimony. The Talmud lumps shepherds together with tax collectors and corrupt government officials as people who cannot be trusted to to provide credible testimony which makes God's choice of delivering the message of good tidings of great joy to shepherds an interesting one to contemplate. Look at verse 10. Then the angel said to the shepherd, shepherds, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Which will be to all people. The angel is making it clear that the message that he's delivering to the shepherds is for all people. So this wasn't a private message intended only for the shepherds. It's a message for all people, which means God intended for the shepherds to share this message with others. But why would he deliver such an important message to a class of people 
who had the reputation for being dishonest and untrustworthy? Why did God choose shepherds to be the eyewitnesses of such a spectacular event? And realize, not only did the shepherds witness the multitude of angels while they were in the fields, but they beheld the newborn Jesus as he was lying in the manger. And verse 17 says that when they had seen the baby Jesus in the manger, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Now, I want to call your attention to that statement in verse 17 because it, it shows us that it was evident that God had commissioned these shepherds to be amongst the first evangelists for Jesus Christ. God had commissioned these shepherds to be amongst the first evangelists for Jesus Christ. But why? That's not the class of people that we would have chosen if we were writing the script. So why did God choose shepherds, a discreditable class of people? Well, for those of us who have done a lot of Bible reading, we know that God does this type of thing a lot. <laughs> For example, uh, who did Jesus first appear to when he was raised from the dead? A woman. And who did he instruct to tell the disciples that he had been risen from the dead? Women. Yet in the first century, in first century Israel, women were not permitted to give legal testimony as well. Nevertheless, Jesus entrusted women with one of the most important testimonies that a person could possibly speak. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and 28 say that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And what Paul is telling us and what the rest of the Bible demonstrates to us is that God likes to choose the things that the world considers weak. The proud and haughty people of the world think they're the strong ones, they're the wise ones, they're the mighty ones. But God puts them to shame by using the very people they reject and despise. It's the meek who will inherit the earth, not the demanding and overbearing. The kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to the arrogant, but it belongs to the poor in spirit. Nor does the kingdom of heaven belong to those who take it by force. But it belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. It's the poor, the cripple, the blind, the lame who are invited to the great banquet. It, it was Moses, a fugitive with a speech impediment, that God used to confront Pharaoh and deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. It was Deborah who delivered Israel from the hand of King Jabin because Barak was too cowardly to deploy the troops himself. It was Jael, who, uh, a woman of the tents, who pounded a tent peg through the head of the mighty commander of the Canaanite army. It was Gideon, a man with no military experience that God made into a man of mighty valor. It was a small group of lowly women who were entrusted with declaring the good news that Jesus had been risen from the dead. It was the lowly shepherds 
who were entrusted with declaring the message that a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born into the world. It was a lowly woman from the lowly town of Nazareth, betrothed to a lowly carpenter from the lowly town of Nazareth, who was given the immense blessing of bearing the Messiah into this world. And the Messiah, by no coincidence, was born into a lowly stable and laid in a lowly manger because there was no room for him in the inn. When we consider how the Lord is pleased to raise up the humble and use the lowly people of the world to confound the proud, we're brought face to face with the stark truth that there is no room for boasting. There is no room for boasting. We have nothing in ourselves by which we can boast. We, we cannot boast about our intelligence. We cannot boast about our strength and might. We cannot boast about our riches or our athleticism or our superb decision-making skills or anything else that we think we might be good at. We simply cannot boast because everything we have, everything that we are, is because of God. The life that you possess, the gifts and talents that you possess, the strength you possess, the riches you possess, everything has been given to you by God. Everything. So there's no room for boasting in ourselves. And this is the point that's being made in the three rhetorical questions that are raised in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as though you did not? God chose to deliver the message of Jesus' birth to shepherds, lowly and despised shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night, because the Lord is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality to man. God resists the proud, but it pleases him to give grace to the humble. Notice the shepherd's initial response to the angel's to the angel who appeared before them. The end of verse 9 says that they were greatly afraid. And this is, as you know, people's typical response when angels suddenly show up. Uh, but it was probably even more frightening for the shepherds because the angel appeared at nighttime. Notice how in verse 9 indicates that the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds when the angel appeared. In other words, the area was lit up with a bright light. In those days, the most common form of illumination they would have experienced out in the field would have been a lantern. And the brightest illumination they would have experienced would be a torch or a campfire. Now imagine yourself standing in the dark at the 50-yard line of a professional football stadium, and then instantaneously all the stadium lights come on at full brightness. That's what it was like for the shepherds when the angel appeared. And there was nothing in their experience that would have prepared them for such a magnificent display of light. So it's not surprising that they were afraid. But then the angel addressed them like angels always address people. Do not be afraid, he said. And then the angel proceeded to explain that he's bringing good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. 
And what, uh, what are those good tidings of great joy? What exactly is that? Verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now note the emphasis the angel is placing on Christ the Lord being a Savior. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. And then he identifies the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the declaration that a Savior has been born is going, is going to demonstrate or make manifest this biblical antithesis between the humble and the proud. The declaration that a Savior has been born is going to demonstrate or make manifest the biblical antithesis between the humble and the proud. How so, you ask? Well, hearing that a Savior is born is not good tidings of great joy to the proud and arrogant soul. It's not. It's only good tidings of great joy to people who are broken and humble. Why? Because the proud and arrogant don't think they need a Savior. Whereas the broken and humble know they do. What we're seeing in the response of the shepherds is that they were broken and humble people. Yes, they were greatly afraid when the angel first appeared to them. And I imagine there was still some residual anxiety in their hearts when the, the great multitude of angels suddenly appeared in the sky along with the angel. But, the, but the, 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 look how the shepherds respond when the angels departed in verses 15 and 16. So it was that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Notice the urgency with which the shepherds responded. Verse 16 says that they came with haste to where Jesus was. They came with haste. Uh, they heard the good tidings of great joy that the angel had preached, and they immediately went to where Jesus was. Isn't that the response of faith, brothers and sisters? Many people hear the good tidings of great joy being preached, but not all of them come to where Jesus is. Many people hear about the Savior who is Christ the Lord, but not all of them make haste to be where Jesus is. For some people, the good tidings of great joy go in one ear and out the other. I saw this very clearly uh, with some of my peers when I was growing up. Uh, we, all of us, we would sit with our families in church. I would sit with my family. They would sit with their family. Um, and they would sit through the entire church service, but they would tune out what was being preached, prayed, and sung. Their physical bodies were sitting in the pews when everybody else was sitting in the pews. Their physical eyes were closed in prayer when everybody else's eyes were closed in prayer. Their physical bodies were standing to sing when everybody else was standing to sing, but their hearts and minds were somewhere else. They were daydreaming about something totally unrelated to what's going on in church. So the good tidings of great joy were having no impact upon their souls. The words of life were just going in one ear and right out the other. Then there are the people who hear the gospel preached, 
but they don't believe it. It's not, it's, it's not that the good tidings of great joy are going in one ear and out the other. No, they're listening. They're hearing. Uh, they're hearing what's being preached, prayed, and sung. They just don't believe it. Those who are honest about their unbelief will admit it. They'll say something like, I don't have a problem with all this Jesus stuff. I think it's great that you find joy and satisfaction in him. It's just, I see things a little differently. I'm not quite as impressed with Jesus as you appear to be. But then there are those who are not honest about their unbelief. They sit in church. They hear the good tidings of great joy being preached, prayed, and sung. But they don't experience the great joy in their hearts. They see others and they hear others who are experiencing this great joy in their hearts, but they've never had that experience themselves. And they're afraid to admit this. Or they're embarrassed to admit this. Or they, are, they think they're going to disappoint their family members if they admit this. So they pretend. After they've been going to church long enough, they know the routines. They know what to say. Uh, they know how to go along with the program. So they pretend that the good tidings of Jesus Christ are bringing great joy into their hearts. But deep down inside, they know that they really don't believe. They know that they've never experienced the great joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. And yet they continue to pretend. Now in saying this, let me be careful not to cause doubt where genuine faith exists. Uh, I don't know any Christian who, who's who experiences a steady and constant feeling of great joy throughout their entire Christian walk. All right? And I'm speaking of genuine Christians right now. People who have uh, truly been redeemed of their sins by the saving grace of, of God. I don't know any Christian who experiences a steady and constant feeling of great joy through their entire Christian walk. My experience as a Christian, along with virtually every other Christian I've ever spoken with, along with the testimony of the psalmists and the other biblical authors, is that our Christian walk often goes through seasons of highs and lows. There will be times where it feels like your relationship with God has never been better, and there will be times when you feel your relationship with God is strained, fragmented, arid, distant, and conflicted. When you're going through one of those low seasons, you might not be experiencing a lot of great joy when you hear the good tidings of the Savior preached, prayed, and sung. You might be sitting in church looking around at everybody else whose hearts are obviously experiencing the great joy of Jesus Christ, and you're thinking to yourself, something's wrong. Uh, I'm not feeling the joy that I used to feel. I know that joy that I'm supposed to be feeling because I felt it before, but I'm not feeling it right now. Something's wrong. But brothers and sisters, when this happens, uh, or I should say, this does happen, when you grow slothful in your devotional life. This happens when you grow slothful in your prayer life. This happens, this certainly happens, when you neglect 
the other spiritual disciplines. And, and uh, most certainly this happens when you have fallen into a habitual pattern of sin. When you give the devil a foothold in your life, he's going to wreak havoc in your heart. There's no question about that. That's not a topic that we should be deliberating upon. This is a given. Uh, he's going, the devil is going to wreak havoc in your heart. There is no way that you can dabble with sin and not have your heart impacted negatively by it. And the longer it takes you to confess your sin and truly forsake your sin, the more harm that's going to be done in your heart. Your relationship with God is going to feel more strained, more fragmented, more arid, more distant, and more conflicted the longer you continue in your sin. And this is referred to as backsliding. Backsliding is when a genuine Christian falls into a pattern of sin for a season of time. But it's not the state of unbelief that I was describing just a few minutes ago. What I was describing a few minutes ago is a person who has never truly believed in Jesus, but has learned how to fit in with the church crowd by pretending to believe in Jesus. The genuine Christian who backslides will eventually repent of his sins and have the joy of his relationship with the Lord restored. We see this, for example, with King David. David sinned and he tried to hide his sin for a while, but the Lord was a good shepherd to David. He used his rod and staff on David and David was broken. He was humbled. He repented. He prayed in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That was David's plea at the time of his repentance. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of your salvation. What does this tell you about the joy in David's heart? It had left him. He was no longer experiencing it. He knew what it was because he once had it, but it had departed from him. And so he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And the Lord restored David's joy of salvation. Hence, David, along with every other backslidden Christian who has experienced the restorative grace of God, can say with all confidence and gratitude, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. And the point I'm making here, brothers and sisters, is that the joy of your salvation may very well be lost when you persist in unrepented sin. But it's never your salvation that's lost. It's only the joy of your salvation that's lost. Which is to say, one of the means the Lord uses to bring his stubborn children to repentance is to deprive them of the joy of their salvation. Yet the Lord never leaves us in that state. He this, this is his assurance to us. The Lord will never leave us in our backslidden state. His abounding grace will inevitably lead us into repentance, which will restore the joy of our salvation to us. Read Psalm 32. Read Psalm 34. But it's totally different for the person who's merely pretending to believe. The pretender has never truly experienced the joy of salvation because he never truly believed in Jesus Christ. He may find enjoyment in the friendships and fellowship he experiences at church. 
and he may find enjoyment in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in church. But this is a faithless enjoyment, a secular enjoyment. No different than the enjoyment an unbeliever experiences when fellowshipping with his friends at the golf and country club. Or no different than the enjoyment an unbeliever experiences when singing along at a Jimmy Buffett concert. So if you're hearing the good news of great joy preached, prayed, and sung, and you're not experiencing great joy in your heart, then ask yourself, have I ever experienced the great joy of the Savior who is Christ the Lord? Have I ever experienced the great joy of the Savior who is Christ the Lord? The pretender will have to answer no. I've never truly experienced the great joy of the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Whereas a backslidden Christian will answer, yes, I've experienced that great joy. I know what it feels like. And I want it restored. And this will compel the backslider to come with haste to where Jesus is. He will flee to the throne of grace where he will call upon Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. And in humility, the backslidden Christian will confess his sins while seeking the grace of God to forsake those sins. That's what repentance is. Not just confession, not just admitting it, but also forsaking it. And by God's grace, the backslidden Christian will do both. He will confess his sins, and by grace, he will forsake his sins. And then he will retreat the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation unto him. So, dear friends, we are all here this morning, and we are hearing the good tidings of great joy being preached, prayed, and sung. You are probably having one of three responses to this. You might be rejoicing in your heart because of the joy of your salvation, that you're celebrating the birth of your Savior, who is Christ the Lord, just like the shepherds were doing. They were rejoicing. And their desire was to draw closer to where Jesus is, and your desire is to draw closer to where Jesus is. That's the first response. Second response, you might, be, you might not be rejoicing in your heart. In fact, this is the second and third response. Both are not rejoicing in their heart. The second response is that you might uh, have known the joy of Christ in the past, but you're not experiencing it today. Or... The third response is that you've never known the joy of Christ, and yet you'd like to experience it today for the first time. If the great joy of Jesus Christ is absent from your heart today, then bring your concern to the throne of grace. There's nothing you can do to manufacture this joy. You are completely dependent upon God for it. The God who, I mind you, is working all things according to the counsel of his will. The God who has the power to control Caesar Augustus and all his building projects, literary projects, uh, the, when the census was taken, when Mary was pregnant, and where she happened to be when she gave birth. That God, that's the God that you should flee to. That's the God that you should run to and throw yourself upon his throne of grace, pleading him for mercy. Bring it to the God of all comfort, who is able to comfort you with his merciful kindness and compassion. Ask him to restore to you the joy of the salvation that you know you possess because you once experienced that joy. 
And if you have that third response, if you have never experienced that joy, then do the same thing. Go to the God, go to our God and Father, the Father of Jesus Christ. Plead with him to be merciful to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Believe that he wills to be merciful to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And then ask him to have compassion on you. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to impart into you that wonderful, great joy of salvation that is only available in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.